Are you concerned with your alcohol or drug use? Are you thinking about quitting for good and you are wondering what all this sober hype is about? Are you sober and frustrated because you continuously relapse and cannot find happiness in sobriety? Whatever the reason and wherever you are at, you have landed in the right place here at Sober Gratitudes. My name is Sarah and I have been sober since 2012. After many years of relapsing and alcoholic drinking, I am so grateful to have been finally relieved of the obsession to drink and freed from the bondage of self. I created this podcast out of the desire to offer you hope and inspiration by sharing my story from addiction to recovery and how I stay sober one day at a time. This podcast also features stories of others who have stayed stopped and are experiencing a satisfying life in sobriety after being addicted. Staying stopped does not have to be a battle. Sobriety does not have to be hard. Finding freedom and a new happiness is absolutely possible. You too can experience a better, more comfortable life without using drugs or alcohol. I invite you to listen to my podcast to hear these stories of hope and inspiration. Please join us in this wonderful community of support and subscribe to Sober Gratitudes on whatever podcasting platform you use. I am so glad you're here and welcome to Sober Gratitudes. Trigger warning. Please be advised that details of sex abuse, grooming, and suicide are discussed in the following episode. If you feel you are in crisis, please call 911 or RAIN, a crisis hotline, and is the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization at 800-656-HOPE. And remember, okay, so um, we're recording now and what I'm saying right now, I can obviously edit it out. Um, Okay, so here we go. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Sober Gratitudes. My name is Sarah, and I am so grateful you're back today for another episode on Sober Gratitudes. Season three, we're in, and we're focusing on sexual trauma and addiction. And today I have a really amazing man with me today who we, uh, we connected on Instagram and his, his name is Michael. Uh, he can go, it goes by Mike as well. And his Instagram handle is silenced by stigma. And I was so compelled to get him on this podcast when we connected. And the reason why I was so compelled is because he has a wealth of information about the data behind men who are victimized um by women like that's shocking to me and i am really grateful that i can offer him a platform and he also has a number of other podcasts that he's going to be on which is phenomenal but i'm really very honored to have him on um, my podcast where he can build awareness through his story and build awareness through um, 
the data that he knows and and what he's fighting for like he's really a force of nature and just speaking with him for a short period of time before starting this this uh particular episode so without further ado i'd like to welcome mike from silenced by stigma on instagram hi mike hi thank you so much for letting me come on it's it's really i like what you do and i'm, I'm proud to be a part of it and i'm so glad I peer pressured you into letting me on. <laughs> no, there was no pressure at all. In fact, I think I told you, like you were one of um, a handful of people who had either approached me or we, I just connected with all having stories of sexual trauma and addiction. And I thought, this is what season three is going to be about. It didn't start out that way. The first couple of episodes were just me doing my, 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 um, monologues but then it just it, it 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 kind of turned into this and i'm really glad because that to me that means this is what needs to be talked about this is what listeners need to hear about right now so enough from me mike tell tell us your story so i grew up in the northeast in a blue collar neighborhood right there are um three boys in the family and we were all, you know, pretty happy with the exception of my mother, who was pretty violent and severely emotional abusing. And um, I, I became like the favorite child to do that with. It's very common with abusers, uh, parental abusers. They find like a favorite child to dump on. Mm. So she was brutal and would tell me we're going to end up in the poor house because of you damn kids and we're going to lose our house and you don't know what it's like to raise you kids and you're, you know, if anything I did, I mean, this is a very small story, but when I was nine, she aggressively washed my mouth out with soap because I said the word fart, right? She um, threatened to leave the family because I couldn't understand long division. Um, you know, I was begging, screaming for her not to go. And you tell your father when I get home, I've left, left this damn family, you know, that kind of thing. And when my father worked like three jobs to keep us afloat. So she would complain we don't have enough money and yet vilify him for not being around as much. And on the rare occasions that we, my dad was around and we got to spend a lot of time with him, my mother would get infuriated at all the attention we were giving him. Uh, I remember her, we were all in the kitchen and goofing around my dad and my mother, who was wearing the same nightgown for like three days in a row, never changed out of it, right? Um, screaming, fuck this family, because we we're paying attention to my dad and like slamming the door to her room. She'd smack me around, toss me around and, uh, always go into a room, slam the door, come out later and, and then try to be affectionate. Like, you know, to put her, her hand, you know, through my hair and I would, I would flinch because the last time she touched me, I took a beating and then she would tell me what a terrible son I am because I wouldn't let my mother touch me. So. Now, three, can we clarify that touching, is she one of your Sexual no, no, abusers. No, I'm sorry. I meant okay. like touching, like in an affectionate way that a mother would yeah. with her son, right? And um, that stuff, you know, crazy was not in short supply because of that. 
So that kind of taught me that I was nothing, I was bad. So then what do you do, right? You go looking for attention elsewhere. There were some older guys in the neighborhood who were really cool and they kind of took me in like a little mascot. The unfortunate thing is, um, you know, they exposed me to porn. I watched them smoke weed and drink and none of it, I believe was ill intention on their part. It was just, that's what they did when they hung out and they didn't mind if I hung around them, right? So in terms of attention is seeking, my babysitter, a female, uh, when she was 16 and I was 10, started spending time with me outside of babysitting and tell me if I was six years older, I'd be her boyfriend and, you know, all that stuff. I'm getting a little emotional. Sorry. Oh, that's fine. Up. We have a lot of that on, this, on our podcast. So, right, you know, right. um, which is weird because I've told the story, you know, before. Mike, how, uh, huh? what was that like for a 16 year old young woman to say something like that to you? How did that well, make you at feel? The time, I thought it was great because I was getting positive attention from a woman, which was, lacking in my yeah. household you know right, right she didn't tell me that I was awful she told me I was great so you know what sort of abused lonely kid doesn't want to hear that you know right, right. and statistics prove that women uh tend to pick children who've already been abused so while I hadn't been sexually abused I was an abused kid and for some reason, you know, they, it's like they smell blood in the water. So and she didn't, did she know that you were abused or was it she I could just pick up on the fact that? Yeah, you know, I think it, it's the latter. I think it just was apparent in my attention seeking behavior. Um, I was often very affectionate because I wanted, yeah. you know, to be hugged by somebody that you know, didn't smack the shit out of me. So oh, yeah. Um, then unfortunately what happened was she would start looking at pornography with me, have me sit on her lap, you know, pull me into her body, squeeze me close, touch my body, you know. It then escalated to her having like guys over and she would fool around with them and have me watch, you know. And I remember this one specific thing. It's just because the disparity of these two things are insane to me. There she is fooling around with this guy. I'm in like evil Knievel pajamas, holding a Batman toy, watching this. And it, it just, can you, you know, can you, that dichotomy is so strange to me. And I don't know why these guys were comfortable with that. Right. I mean, I get it. 16 year old guy will crawl naked over broken glass to touch a boob. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but in front of a kid, you know, so cut to four years later and there was a kid in the neighborhood. He was six, lonely, ch uh, only child. And he would kind of poke around my driveway when I was shooting baskets, right? And he was obviously very lonely. So I spent a little time with him, 
play a little basketball with, you know, whatever, just positive attention. So his mother, uh, who's 22 or 23 at the time, would come around to, you know, to pick him up, basically. And he, uh, you know, she'd start talking to me. It started conversations. She was also dating one of those older guys in the neighborhood that I that I had mentioned. And this particular guy was someone I really admired, you know. So through spending time with that older guy and a little bit with, with her son, her and I had a lot of interactions. So then they started developing into her saying, um, you know, I look so good in my running shorts, right? I was on the cross country team. Um, which is a really strange thing for an adult woman to say to a 14 year old, right? I mean, I can't even wrap my head around that. And then, you know, all the girls in school must love you. You're so cute. You're so funny, blah, 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 blah. Then it progressed to her making sexual remarks. I remember once she was telling me a story that she was bragging to the guys at work that she gave excellent blowjobs and told me that. Then it became, I had a dream about you last night. I thought about you when I masturbated. I thought about you during sex with my boyfriend. I wish it was you. All these things, right? So the grooming just escalated really quickly, which, you know, I was a 14-year-old boy. So, you know, and I'm straight. And I was just like, wow, you know, this is, this is great, right? She's giving me all this attention. And it's, you know, sexual attention, which at 14, you're, you know, I had, I had started the engine with sexuality early when I started getting exposed to porn and that babysitter. But, um, you know, you're a teenage boy and you're really revved up. So then uh, one day she brought me upstairs and unbuttoned her shirt and, you know, exposed her breasts. And I remember I was really nervous and I said, I don't even know how to kiss. And she said, there's nothing to it. And she pulled me in. And with certainly under a minute, she pulled down, you know, my pants and she went down on me. So, um, and then when we were leaving her apartment, she said, listen, you shouldn't feel guilty about this, uh, speaking in terms of her boyfriend. You shouldn't feel guilty or that you betrayed him because, you know, this is between us, right? Classic abuser talk. So, you know, that kept going on and I'd spend time with her and her boyfriend. And let's say we watched a movie or something, right? Or, you know, they, they were cool and let me hang out and talk to me or whatever. And then she'd walk me to the door and kiss me and touch my body, put my hand on her and say, you know, I wish it was you staying tonight instead of him, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, it's pretty brazen. I mean, he's right down the hall, but, you know, he was, he was unaware. Then on Memorial Day weekend, uh, she brought me into her house and laid me on the floor in like the hallway in between the bedrooms in her apartment. And she got on top of me and, um, you know, I came very quickly and she got off of me, walked down the hall to the bathroom, wet a washcloth 
tossed it at me and told me to get out. So, and yet I'm thinking, oh my God, we really like each other. This is amazing. I'm a man now, you know, all this stuff. And that, that kept going on and we'd spend time together. And when we had, you know, a night to do it, you know, before my curfew, I mean, can you, that sentence is insane. I got to have sex with this woman, um, you know, until it was my curfew. And then I had to go home. Like how, so then she started, you know, I love you. You're the only good thing in my life. You know, that kind of thing. Then um, she confessed to me that she had been also sleeping with her ex-husband. And he's, he was at the time an IV drug user. So uh, I know, you know, we didn't use condoms and I'm sure she didn't use them with him or her boyfriend. So I was very scared. Like, you know, AIDS education was becoming a big thing then. And she said, well, if you're so worried, you know, just get an AIDS test. Uh, she was, you know, obviously dismissive. So I remember calling the hospital at this point, I'm 15. And I was asking this nurse, you know, if I could get one. And she said, unfortunately, I can't do it without parental consent. And I explained I couldn't. She asked me why I wanted one. I started giving her details. She started crying. Wow. And wanted to get more information out of me. And I wouldn't give it to her. I didn't want anyone to intervene, right? So no test. Then she got pregnant or became pregnant or however. And um, there's, we don't know. There's no established paternity. Uh, she said, Mike, even if the child turns out to be yours, I'm going to raise it as my boyfriend's and he'll never know. So. Wow. Then, you know, they got married. Uh, her and I didn't continue any sexual contact. I, I do remember we still had sex when she was pregnant. Um, I should mention all the while, she had an adult friend, uh, a woman who was, you know, her age, who knew about what her, what, you know, my abuser and I were doing, encouraged it, gave me tips on how to please a woman, counseled me on it, used to make jokes about it, you know, I mean, it was like, it was as if I was, you know, an adult, and I had sort of been taught that I could be on you know, play on the field with adults, you know, those older guys would let me hang out. I got attention from older women. So I'm thinking this is perfectly normal. Um, I started getting into disruptive behavior and it got real bad. So my parents brought me to a family counselor and we were all in the room and they pressed me and pressed me. And I finally admitted, you know, what happened and all that came out of that was I got punished. I was grounded. Yeah. It was as if, um, I've used this analogy before, like it was as if they caught me before I had a license joyriding in the family car. Okay. Essentially like, yes, you're going to be old enough to drive soon, but you shouldn't have done it before you had a license. So now you're in trouble. Yes, you're going to have sex with a woman, but you shouldn't have done it when you were 14. So now you're in trouble. 
No one, including the family counselor, stated that it was wrong. Nobody intervened. Nobody confronted her, which is really surprising for my dad because he was such a wonderful, loving man. And I can tell you that if my abuser was a man or if I was a girl, my father would have quite simply beaten that man to death with his, you know, with his bare hands. But because I was a boy and she was a woman, it, it just, you know, somehow they, they never paid attention to that. It never got mentioned again in the family. It was never, ever, ever spoken of again. So to this day, yep. Well, my father passed many, many years ago, but you know, and I don't, thank you. I don't speak with my mother, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, so after that, there was drinking and drugs and that started really escalating. Um, a suicide attempt happened when I was 16. Mm. No one put two and two together and was like, oh, he was raped. Maybe that's why he's upset. Um, And you probably, did you, I'm speaking for you. You didn't, I mean, the messages you were given were, mm -hmm. this was okay. Yeah, the woman said she loved me. Her friend who's an adult said it was fine. The family counselor, nor my parents said anything was, was wrong about it. You know, I didn't understand why I was suicidal. Oh, it just happened. Yeah. So then it really started escalating. I was cutting school to go to bars. You know, there were some shitty parts uh, of my area, really bad areas. And, uh, you know, they would have let a 12-year-old drink there. So I would just cut school, hang out with the old, the old timers and uh, get drunk. Yeah. So my parents caught me coming home drunk when I was 16 and immediately sent me to alcohol counseling, which is kind of weird when you think about it, right? I mean, it's good that they did. Of course, you think your child has a problem, you want to intervene. Right. Never considered any sort of help when they found out I was sexually abused. But when they caught me drunk, that was, you know, that was where they finally intervened. Um, obviously, you know, that didn't help because, you know, I just became very drunk, very reckless all the time. Uh, things got hectic, violent, dangerous. Um, and then I made the completely predictable decision to start working in the bar business. And I was there for almost three decades. Uh, and that's where everybody's drunk all the time. Yeah. So everybody's drunk, everybody's using drugs and everyone is having sex with each other. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't weird that I was completely wasted on a Tuesday afternoon because yeah. we all did that. Right. And that just kept escalating and escalating. And then sexual compulsivity became a huge thing. And I had sex with everyone. I mean, every woman who would even consider having sex with me, you know, 
Uh, it just happened. And it was always like unprotected sex. It was often strangers. Um, very, you know, very, very dangerous stuff. So all this time, I'm super depressed. Um, without knowing it, these are things that I've been diagnosed with by a couple mental health professionals. Persistent uh, depressive disorder, uh, panic and anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, borderline personality disorder, bipolar two with hypomania and attention deficit disorder. So. Wow. When were you diagnosed with all this? Like a year ago. How long have you, at this point, have you been sober? Four years. Four years. Okay. Mm -hmm. So in this research that I've been doing, um, abuse absolutely alters your brain chemistry. Absolutely. I've heard the same. Mm -hmm. uh, what it initially does is when it's violent abuse, is it rushes cortisol into your system, which is, you know, the fight or flight drug. Mm -hmm. And on a small body, you know, that's very damaging. Yeah. And the problem with continued abuse is you are always in the state of fight or flight. Yeah. So this cortisol is always there. It's always amping up. And then you reach a point where you're unable to discern a real threat from an innocuous one. Mm -hmm. Now, abuse has also been proven to uh, give poor health outcomes for, for victims. Uh, I mean, we're talking like anything you can imagine, it causes a problem. Uh, certainly your mental health, the yeah. way you perceive the world, the way you perceive yourself is very damaged and skewed. Um, even at interpersonal relationships, you, they're very destructive. Mm -hmm. Professional relationships are destructive. Uh, abused people often have problems with money as a result. 80% of men who have been sexually abused are divorced, right? Wow. And, and that's not me saying it. These are all studies from the CDC and the Bureau of Justice Statistics and reading studies by uh, experts in the field. You know, this isn't just me, some schmuck on the internet saying, oh yeah, here's a number and, and just believe me. So these things were, were pretty staggering. And it's weird when I look at the research, I followed every single step along the way, right? So it just kept getting worse and worse. Uh, I became more and more reckless, but there's still like that good part of me, right? And uh, I fostered uh, a heroin addicted newborn, right? He was born a couple of months premature because his mother was using. And uh, first of all, they never should have given me that baby because that baby required specialized care, but they needed someone. And I said, sure. The system to protect this child was so flawed that it put him in constant danger. I kept rushing him to the ER for help. They gave, they assigned me to a pediatrician who said she had never worked on a withdrawing baby. Um, the social worker assigned to the case admitted she uh, didn't know how to look for the signs that say the birth parents were still using. So I had to sort of teach her that I kept you know, ringing every bell that I could, making noise. I got, uh, I got him a lawyer from the child advocate's office. Um, I kept asking for help, and 
you know, finally he got put into specialized care. I mean, these babies, you can't put them down. They require constant physical contact. The screams that they make aren't human. I've never heard a sound like that oh. in my life. You can't imagine the torture. It's, it's beyond anything I thought was even possible. And then they get skin tear on their bodies. Like they're just, they're in a terrible place. This baby was so small, put the entire baby, cradled his head in my hand and he would fit on my forearm. Wow. So um, I just sort of had this feeling when that happened, right? That, okay, if we as people can't get behind protecting arguably the most vulnerable type of people that we have, you know, heroin addicted newborns, we can't help them. If we're not all on the same page, then what the fuck are we doing, right? And I want to be very clear. I don't blame anyone or anything for my drinking, my drug use, my sexual behavior, and the fact that I was generally an asshole and betrayed people and you know lied and all these terrible things. But I will say, once I saw that happen with him, I just said, fuck it. We're, what's the point? Nothing matters, right? So, you know, that's when the wheels really came off the wagon. And, Were you uh, sober at this point? I'm sorry? Were you sober at this point when you adopt, when you were caring for oh, the God, baby? No. no, but when oh. I was caring for the baby, you know, I wouldn't drink. Okay. Uh, when I had, you know, that I wouldn't do. Okay. Um, so I ended up, my drinking got so reckless, I ended up getting pushed out of my own business that I had built. Uh, I ended up losing my house and I wound up bussing tables. I was like 44 at the time. I wound up bussing tables at this very upscale restaurant that I used to go to almost weekly and spend a couple hundred dollars on dinner, right? So the shame factor kicked in. And the fact that I was truly screwed uh, kicked in. I also had to move into a friend's garage as I didn't have a place to live. So I blacked out the window, the, the one window in the garage, and I just started really having at it, right? So I contend that I could drink Ireland under the table at the time, you know, I drank essentially a liter of scotch every day and was popping Xanax like they were Tic Tacs. Um, I then, through a friend, found a different career and I had that job. I was nine weeks into that job when I just had this incredibly depressive, dangerous episode where. I drank so much over those two days. It was more than I had ever had in my life, which is, which is really saying something. I would, I would wake up, I would drink, pop some Xanax, pass out, wake up, drink Xanax. And this went on, you know, for a, a couple of days. And then um, I realized, hey, let's just, let's just check out. This is, this is exhausting. So I crushed up. 40 milligrams of Xanax um, 
after I had, you know, like I said, I had a profound amount of, of alcohol in my system. Like I couldn't walk. I had to crawl, you know, and, and try to crush him up and, you know, that kind of thing. Like I, I wasn't, I was virtually out of control of my body. Like, um, I then made a phone call to like say goodbye or something, mm. which clearly was a cry for help, but it wasn't right. conscious, right? It wasn't a conscious thought. And then I just heard this pounding on the door. It was the police. So, you know, they called the police to come and grab me. So they pulled me out and stuffed me into an ambulance, uh, which absolutely was not the first time for me that that happened. It wasn't my first time in police custody. It certainly wasn't my first time in the back of an ambulance because of drinking. Um, and this time, though, it was different because uh, I was committed to a psychiatric hospital. So that happened. Uh, during that time, uh, the decision was sort of made for me that I would have to go to rehab. So I went off to rehab. And I'll say what's great about rehab. In fact, for me, there were only two good things about rehab. One is you get 30 days sober. And when the hell's the last time you had that, right? When you've been an alcoholic for 29 years and you're essentially living in a camp with people, everyone there speaks your language. Everyone there is an addict, has been an addict, has been an alcoholic, is an alcoholic, however you, know, you wanna say it. So we all understand each other instinctively on sort of a visceral level. And that's very helpful. Because, you know, as you know, we sort of hide the problem, even from ourselves. And then, you know, you're certainly not going to tell your buddy who doesn't have the problem. But when you're telling people who are as damaged as you in the same way, it's very helpful. Then, of course, there was AA, which, you know, was very helpful. They would take us to AA meetings in rehab. I will say there is a problem with rehab, that it's unregulated. So. I mean, the stuff they did, I want you to write down the name of a song whose lyrics embody your struggle with addiction and we'll play the song for everyone. Yeah, that's a class. Um, let's do music. They also did music therapy where like some, some guy came in and we bang on like bongos and supposedly that was helpful. I mean, it was just, it's absurd. They did have guest speakers though. And that's when you heard some stories that were so horrific, you couldn't even wrap your head around it. So, mm -hmm. you know, that was helpful in the sense that you realize how pervasive this problem is and you're not alone. So after rehab, somehow I was able to keep that job, um, but I was essentially homeless. So because I, I couldn't stay in my friend's garage again after what happened, right? Um, one of the people from rehab took me in, you know, for a little bit. And then when it was time for me to leave, leave her place, um, I had nowhere to go. So I ended up having to stay with my mother, who, as you recall, was my first abuser. Mm -hmm. So not only is it humiliating that I'm I'm what, 45 at the time, 
and I had been very successful in my career and was now staying with my mother. I mean, that's just really pride swallowing moment that I was staying with this awful woman that I hated was, was terrible. And I was like sleeping on some filthy, you know, she lives kind of filthy and I was sleeping in this like filthy carpet in this terrible room. Um, you know, she's morbidly obese and just, you know, eating fucking Twinkies all day. And, you know, just, just a mess. However, the distance between my job and where my mother lived required a four hour commute every day. So not only are you an absolute mess trying to recover, right? Your body and your brain are going mental. They're on fire because you're depriving it of alcohol and drugs. And you're also realizing the absolute mess you made and you have to contend with those consequences, but it's exhausting. It's exhausting to commute like that. So, you know, I would just wake up at like five in the morning, head out by 5.30, make it there, um, come back. It was, you know, you had pretty much an hour and then you had to go to bed and do it all over again. So that didn't help. I was finally able to get out of that situation. And, you know, now I have an apartment of my own. It's arguably though the crappiest apartment I've lived in since college. And uh, I make maybe 40% of my old salary. Um, I used to be a trim guy. And now all the medicine, you know, the fistful of medication I take makes me blow up like a tick. So now, not, on, not only am I staring at 50, so I look a little old, right? Me, I look old at 50, right? Um, you look great, younger, than, you know, you're, we're like a year apart. You look outstanding. I'm glad this video isn't getting posted. <laughs> the disparity of how we look essentially at the same age. Right? I just have to say right now, though, like there, there's makeup, there is filters <laughs> and apps that can help out with how right. ones we look right. these days. <laughs> so, um, you know, and now I'm adding that I feel fat, you know, mm. and, and that just doesn't feel good. Um, I, after rehab, I took a bunch of medication that they gave me and I blown up, right? I put on like 58 pounds in like three months. I, it was insane. Uh, I stopped taking those medications after a while I was feeling better and dropped the weight in, in a few months, right? And I was back to my normal thing. But then I started noticing that I was having profound panic attacks, like concurrent. And I couldn't think, I was disorientated. I was petrified, I was shaking, heart racing, just your classic thing. And then there was always this mantra repeating in my head, which was, you are nothing, you are no one, you should kill yourself. And that was just constant on a loop, right? Sort of like, you know, when you have a song in your head and it's usually a terrible song and it won't get out of your head, that's what this was like, uh, except obviously a little worse, uh, suicidal yeah. ideation was oh. big, all, you know, hopelessness, but all that stuff. So the panic attacks prompted me into therapy again. And what was interesting about that was not only did I get diagnosed with this, you know, absurd menu of crazy, but um, I got properly medicated and I was sober enough now to understand what was going on. 
you know, you're two months sober and you're taking therapy. You can't even pay attention to what the hell you're doing. Right. But now I, I was three years in at the time, right. Uh, of being sober. So it all started making sense. And two things really became clear. One is I had a bunch of untreated mental illness. Mm-hmm. And two was the impact the sexual abuse had right. on me. I always knew the impact my mother had on me. And that was clear. And, you know, that's your first woman in your life, right? right? And I knew that, but I was unaware of the sexual abuse because essentially no one had told me it was wrong, that it was damaging. And that is what started, you know, sort of this fire in my gut where I realized, oh my God, I lost three decades, three decades of my life uh, to this bullshit. Actually, shit, 35 years. I lost 35 years, Um, which is fine because obviously I'm going to live to be 150. So who cares, right? You kidding me? My liver's like 98 years old right now. So um, I got real angry and I started having dreams about her where she was pregnant and I didn't want my family to know. And I was embarrassed, which, you know, obviously had actually happened. So Um, And when I saw her in my dreams, I finally saw her for how disgusting she was. Mm -hmm. I then went to the police department in the city in which the abuse took place and filed charges because the statute of limitations was 35 years after you turn 18 to report it, which is good because Dr. Joan Cook, who's a big researcher, on male sexual abuse victims uh, has stated that it takes an average of 20 to 25 years for a man to come forward with Mm -hmm. his abuse. Mm -hmm. So I go down there, file charges. I go down there again because the SVU detectives want an interview. We had this Mm -hmm. long interview. They had me write a very detailed account of all the abuse, every, the name of everyone I ever told about it over the, you know, the last 35 years, every health professional, I put all of it together and they said, yeah, we're going to, my guess is we're going to be able to nail her in under a month. Like you're good to go. This is happening. Three days later, they called me and said, the attorney general is not going to pursue. And I said, why? And they said, you were 14 and not 13. And the abuse was consensual. Now, just the phrase consensual. Wait, he used the word, the abuse was consensual? The sex was consensual. Okay, still. What? Now, this was the SVU detective, who was a great guy. I mean, I can't say how much I like this guy. He's amazing at his job. Uh, He was just reiterating what he was told by the attorney general. I mean, what can he do, right? Right. Um, So hearing that, was enraging because in that state, the age of sexual consent, which is almost nationwide is 16 years old. So by definition, it can't be consensual. Um, And then apparently if I had been 13, it would have been first degree rape, which would have been the 35 years to report after the age of 18. So um, I then thought, all right, let's get some attorneys and see if we can do a civil trial, right? And I knew this woman had no money. Uh, I had looked her up online. 
you know, to find out where she was to tell the detectives. And um, so I told the attorneys, look, you can keep all the money. I don't care about this. All of it. Anything we get goes to you. I just want to hold this woman accountable. And what they all said was, look, you have a great case, but we can't pursue it. There wasn't enough money in it to justify their time, which is very difficult to hear. But I mean, you understand it on the one hand. Um, I called all these legal aid services. No one would pursue it because really they couldn't find an attorney to, to go for it. So the lesson I learned was I got raped like six months too late and by a woman who wasn't wealthy. Those were my two big mistakes. So um, I became enraged and not so much at the abuse, right? I was enraged at the criminal justice system at this point. And, and then I started investigating sexual consent laws, right? And the stuff I found was so mind bending that um, I started going even further into research and decided let's do something with this. And that's when I created like the Twitter, the Facebook. Mm -hmm. uh, and I said, okay, let's present this information to shine a light on this because men report far less than women and almost never report sex when the, I mean, sex, the, the abuse when mm -hmm. it's a female perpetrator. Mm -hmm. right? And everyone thinks that it's very rare that this happens to a man, any kind of abuse, you know, compared to say women, which I want to be very clear, most like 80 to 85% of all sexual crimes are committed by men, okay? Women make up 15 to 20% of uh, the perpetrators, but that's still a massive number. Mm -hmm. It's an inconceivable number. Um, in 2011, the CDC surveyed and found that like 1.2, two million women had been sexually abused the year prior um, and 1.2 million men. It was like the women beat the men out by like, you know, 30,000 out of 1.2 million. So the numbers were almost identical. Of the sexual assaults that take place, men make up 45%. Wow. 48%, excuse me. Yeah. Um, it starts with one in six boys before they turn 18. By the time they reach the age of 18, the numbers go to one in four, which absolutely lines up with the 48%, right? And these aren't my numbers. Again, mm -hmm. these are people who do this for a living. Right. So um, I decided let's, let's get that info out there. And then let's try to create some, you know, sort of a place for men to realize they're not alone. This problem yeah. is incredibly pervasive. Let's educate women um, so that they can understand how bad it is because we're inextricably linked. It, when we raise better boys, everyone wins. When we have better women, everyone wins, you know, and I'm in no way knocking women and saying, my God, they need to be better. I'm just saying theoretically, well, when we create better humans, who doesn't win in that case, right? 
And that's, that's what I thought. And then the more I delved into it, I decided if we can, let's lobby to change the laws, at least in the place where the abuse happened with me, which is pretty much gonna take an act of God to happen. And uh, I can get into that, you know, if you want. Um, so then, you know, I booked a bunch of podcasts and I'm just trying to gain traction. I'm only yeah. a month into this, you know, yeah. so that's, that's where I am. And I will say, recovery from alcohol and drugs. Once I hit that place and I saw the consequences, it was really, um, it wasn't, oh, if I drink, I'll end up dead. Like I wanted to be dead. Right. Um, but it was, oh, if I continue to do this, I'm going to have to live with my mother. Mm. Where am I going to go? I'm going to end up living in my car. That was the situation at the time. Right. So fear is a huge motivator. You know, and of course I was in therapy. I was going to AA. I was getting, you know, some medication like antabuse so I couldn't drink. Now Trexone to curve the cravings. Um, so that was very helpful. And then with this, with the sexual abuse, anger is another great motivator. See these negative emotions that people think, oh my God, we should, you know, almost hide from or diminish. I say, look, they're there. What are you going to do with it? Right. Let's do something. Let's, let's help somebody with it. Instead of being the other part of me, which is confrontational, a little violent. When I see out in public, somebody do something stupid or dangerous and driving or not, I, uh, you know, I make problems. You know, I'm, I'm still a bit of a dry drunk that way. And I'm trying not to. Um, so with all that anger, that's where I went. And here I am. Wow. I want to say that you've left me speechless, which is uh, hard to do um, with this person right now. But I, I first and foremost want, I want to say with the utmost sincerity that I am so deeply sorry that you had to experience what you experienced. Um, I could sense, I could feel the moments of vulnerability for you. Um, yeah, you're started, four years in. You see, yeah. I was like playing with the pen and I started looking when I was saying certain things. So yeah, I'm glad you picked up, you know, on that. Yeah. Um, the audio was a little bit funky there, so I can always just edit that out, but um, that's fine. Um, but I, I do. So I want to really drive the, that home that you sharing everything you just shared on my podcast uh, takes a, a lot of um is is it's very selfless to do what you're doing and to have eight other podcasts that you're going to be doing this on the passion i see that you have in getting moving this forward building awareness is is really um for those of us who have been victimized in any way you know we i know for myself it's like you feel empowered when you can do something that you can feel you can make a change and um, you're you're certainly doing that. And I I, I just want to say to the listeners, please go visit his Instagram account and his Twitter um, Twitter page. Yeah. Again, the Instagram is silenced by stigma. It's all one word, and this will be in the show notes as well. And his Twitter account, Michael's, is at sb stigma um, on Twitter. And um, you say, I'm just gonna I'm gonna read what you wrote in your 
bio. Stand up and speak out for the boys and men victimized by sexual abuse. Quote, compassion is not a finite resource, end quote. I got that from Dr. Laura Stemple, who um, is an associate dean of uh, the law school in use at UCLA. Uh, she studies sexual crimes. And she said she was so staggered by the information that she was finding that in one particular study from the Bureau of Justice Statistics, she actually called them to see if they had made a mistake because she couldn't believe wow. what she was reading. And she wrote, um, she said that this awareness raising about men need not come at the expense of female victims of sexual crimes because compassion is not a finite resource. Yeah. Wow, that really motivated me. Yeah. Know? Well, I applaud you. I I have um, so much respect for you, and um, I really I really hope that your your account gets a lot of traction, and I hope that you get some like a full justice in the area that you in the, the of the country that you were victimized by this. Um, sick woman thank you um and and finally thank you so much for being on my podcast and and sharing as you did i know this will help so many people and um i hope we stay connected i oh, find yeah. very i find i'm very much um inspired by you and i think you're a valuable resource in the community on social media and out in the world with regards to um, this particular issue. And you're, you just, I just feel so much uh, positive energy behind your, your words, even when you're speaking of things that are very difficult to hear. Um, the, 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 the passion I just see and hear and feel so much passion. Um, and that's must be feel so empowering to you to be able to be at this place only four years in. I mean, three and a half decades, four years. I mean, you've you've had just four years to start this journey of recovery from both addiction and the sexual trauma. And um, it's a process. I know that from my own experience, it's a journey. Um, and the fact that you, you're you here for a reason and you are you were meant to stay here on this earth for a reason. And this conversation is an example. Well, this, what you shared is, is an example of um, the need for you to, to, to exist in this world. You're mm -hmm. gonna help so many. I'm really, thank you so much. I'm, it's an honor. It's an honor to know you. Oh, my God. I, I want to say that that may be the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. And that's not hyperbole. So thank you. I think you're tremendous. I'm so glad that we connected. Um, and this is this is a pleasure not only to be on your podcast, to be your guest, to know you, but 
you know, I want to say, I don't know that this is a selfless act and not because, not just because as, as you and I both know, as alcoholics or in recovery or, or not, we love to talk. And also, um, do you remember the book, The Road Less Traveled? Yes. Right. Scott <clears throat> M. Peck, uh, the therapist, also an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. um, he said things like this, things that are even helpful to other people are in a good way, selfish acts, because they make you feel good. And that's sort of the impetus to do it um, because it feels good to help other people. So it, it is both selfless, but selfish. And right. I think it's great. Yeah. Well, that in, in the program of recovery that I am a part of, you know, we can't keep it unless we give it away. We can't stay sober unless we're helping other people get sober. Um, I know that I was saved because I happened to go to a meeting in person of a woman who was raped and she shared about it in her story. And afterward, I, I had like a breakdown. That's when I, that's when for me, I realized how much it was impacting me. I did not realize that I um, was not process dealing with it and healing from it the way I needed to. And I thanked her afterwards and she said, I'm blown away because I rarely share how I was raped in my, st <clears throat> in the 10 years at that time. This was eight years ago um, of, of her all the time that she has spent doing service work, sharing her story. So to me, that's divine intervention, you know, that I needed to hear that. And because I heard it, I started a journey of, of recovering from um, the abuse and doing what I needed to do, you know, going to the right doctors, getting prescribed the right medication that I needed to, and then becoming um, members of, of different groups where I shared the story. And as Forrest shared in our last episode, yeah. because he says, and I'm not saying this to toot my own horn, because this is how we heal each other. He heard me just speak very, you know, like the, this is what happened to me in a, in a meeting one day and it gave him the courage to come out after wow. decades and, and decades. There it is. Yeah. There it is. And now he's a man who shared his story on this podcast who, and he, dedicates a lot of his time to helping people just like you're doing right now um and you're coming from coming at it from a, a little bit of a different angle but that's what we need you you have you're data driven you know a lot of the about the 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 legality and um i want to i just want to vomit about the whole 13 14 year old that i mean that must be infuriating but the but maybe just being on the podcast that you're on someone will hear your story and I, I can't help but not believe that there will be good that comes from all of this. There will be more healing for you um, that comes from this. Because like I said, I know from my experience, it's been, it wasn't overnight that I, that I was able to um, get to where I am today. Right, right. Took yeah, years, I, took years. I, I would love to be you know, to reach the place where you are. And it's only been a month, you know, and it's never enough, right? You're like, I need more, I gotta do more. Um, 
I want you to hear this. Uh, all this stuff is disgusting. So we'll talk about the legality of consent laws. So in the state where this happened, um, they are the only state that allows unrestricted consensual incest at the age of 16. Uh, and you would think that's Alabama, right? right. We, we, we all do that. Oh, those backwoods Kentuckians. Nope, they have far stronger consent laws. Um, New Jersey is the only other state that allows any incest, but you must be um, 18, which when you think about it, it's rape. Because how have you been groomed since you were a kid by your, and you know what? It's women. If a child is sexually abused by, uh, a, if, if a child is sexually abused by a parent, they are 400, the perpetrator is 450% more likely to be a woman. Which that's not a real number, 450%, but it's 4.5 times. Right. Um, here's the other one, because you'd mentioned the school thing. The law in the state, this is one of the things I want to change, but you can't because none of these politicians can get elected without the teachers union. The teachers union is fighting this because they're saying, oh, well, you need to do this to everyone who supervises kids. Well, first of all, you're the only place that children are legally obligated to be. Um, and that's like saying, oh, well, Unless uh, you give everyone a speeding ticket officer who's driving on this highway in this moment, unless you give out you know, the fi 500 speeding tickets to the people who drive by in a minute, I, I shouldn't get a speeding ticket. Fuck you. Yes, you should. Um, the law is a 14-year-old student can consent to being sexually touched by a teacher. A 16-year-old student can consent to sexual penetration. By a student. I mean, by a teacher. Can you even wrap your head around it? The thing I wanted to say also about recovery, and I'm, I'm, this is my last thing. I swear to God, I'm so sorry. No, um, no apologies, man. You had talked about being in different recovery groups. Here's how I know I started to really recover. Um, I went to a smart recovery uh, meeting. And there's like a girl talking about, a teenage girl talking about self-harm. Um, in a, a, the AA meeting I had gone to the day before, this former honor roll student kid on the lacrosse team got addicted to, um, uh, what's the shit that everyone's, Oxy, Oxycontin, mm -hmm. and started becoming, she was a prostitute in her teenage years. Mm -hmm. And just told all these awful stories about what she would do for drugs. So I'm in the smart meeting. And this fucking guy goes, you know, I wanted to see if I was recovered. So I bought two candy bars and I only had one of them. And I left one on the kitchen table to see if I would have the other one. And I was like, who the fuck do you think you are talking about this right now? You're not addicted. Like that's nothing compared to all this stuff. But, and I was really judging him because mm -hmm. On the surface, it is. It does sound ridiculous, especially to someone who's like, "Hey, man, have you ever sucked a dick for a Kit Kat?" Mm -hmm. Well, you know, she had to for OxyContin. Now, deeper into sobriety, I'm like, "Yeah, man, look, you were hurting for whatever reason, right?" And 
you needed to recover. So yeah. that's how I knew I made it. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. Well, Michael, I, <laughs> I really, again, like you, this has been an amazing, amazing episode. And I'm, I, I'm going to plug the shit out of you um, and get <laughs> others to plug. <laughs> Because I control so much. So many yes, people. get your minions to invite me on. <laughs> no, well, you know, um, it uh, connection is key in recovery from just about anything. So I'm really, I'm so glad that you've been making connections. And you've started a month ago. Just, just you wait. Just keep doing what you're doing. And then the connections will keep going. It's, and it will benefit you in your recovery and that's really what is so essential and it'll make you and it'll fuel the fire i would imagine behind um your your passion for um speaking out and standing up and speaking out for the ones that can't speak so thank you so much again for being on the show and and before we say goodbye can you just do plug your um all your accounts so people know where to find you. So on Instagram, it's uh, silenced by stigma. On Twitter, it's SB stigma. And Facebook is also silenced by stigma. I do have a website, silencedbystigma.org. However, um, it's under construction because I'm the one doing it. And it turns out I'm terrible at it. So I need, you know, I need to get there, but it will, and it'll contain, you know, links to all the interviews and all the info I have and, you know, shout outs to great people like you and, and plugs for your podcast. Cause we need you and more people like you. Yeah. There's a lot of us out there doing it. It's, it's wonderful. I, I, I don't hesitate to plug all the recovery podcasts out there. I don't feel like I'm in competition with anybody. Cause this is a, this is a team yeah. effort by us all. And, and lastly, and most importantly, for anyone who's struggling the way you have struggled, anyone listening who knows somebody who, and struggle is like an understatement, but who has gone through the, the horror that you have been through, what do you recommend this young man or young boy or teenage boy, What where should they go? What should they do for well, help? Obviously, you go to your parents first if you're, if you're you know, a kid. Um, but you have to advocate for yourself. If you end up with non-responsive parents like I had, then go to the police immediately. Mm -hmm. Go to the police instantly if, if that's not what your parents do, if you don't have their support. Um, then you need to go into counseling and the police department has plenty of advocates. You can get free counseling and that even applies to adults. So they okay. can go there. Absolutely get help from someone who does it for a living. You know, if all of the plumbing in your house goes out, you're gonna call a plumber because this is what they do, mm -hmm. right? And you can find a therapist that specializes in uh, sexual trauma, all kinds of abuse, and they're often the same people who work with addictions because they are so tied up in one another. Right. right? And get a psychiatrist once you've met with your therapist if you don't find the one that works for you find another one 
and they will tell you real quickly if you need medication and there is no shame in it. Mm-hmm. You absolutely need to get medicated. And then you can educate yourself mm-hmm. online, everywhere. And there are plenty of support groups, but you need therapy, in my opinion, just to make sure you're okay. Just to talk it out with somebody and get some legal justice if you can, because that, I believe, would help. It's you advocating for yourself. And that's something that will benefit you for the rest of your life. Right. And you're speaking to about the, to men of all ages and women too, Absolutely. but like, not just, you don't have to be like, if you're 35 and you're listening to this thinking, you know, this is what happened to me. I need to seek help. Um, of course, go to silence by stigma and, and talk to Mike. I'm sure Mike. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I have resources and, and contacts to resources and, uh, but you know, they're readily available online. Mm-hmm. I will talk to anyone any kind, any gender, any self-identity, mm-hmm. any kind of victimization. This is a doors open, come on in if you need help. So. You're amazing. You're amazing, Mike. Thank Mike, you. Mike. Oh, this has been great. Uh, Mike from Silence by Stigma. Um, I hope you have an amazing day. You've done some amazing service today recording for Thank this you. podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. My pleasure. Sober Gratitudes is a podcast dedicated to spreading the hope in recovery from addiction. It is an inclusive show that does not promote or represent any recovery program. When my guests and I discuss what keeps us sober, we are referring to our own unique experiences. Our goal is to encourage and give hope to those who are struggling and need support.